Good morning. Good morning. And good morning to you, too. This is Law of the Land, and I am Gloria J. Brown Marshall, hoping to make another day of enlightenment, inspiration, empowerment through WBAI's platform, whether or not it is this radio station, WBAI.org, or the podcast, Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall, which can be found on Audible and all the other podcast platforms. Today, I'm going to have a special guest from ProPublica. But before I get into that guest, I want to, and what he has to offer, I want to discuss for a moment two things. One, without vision, the people perish. Without vision, the people perish. Now, that is a phrase that's been interpreted from the Bible and Proverbs. reason why I raise it is because today is election day. Today is the day we vote. I voted earlier, woke up, got out, voted earlier. And I saw that it was a really kind of scant ballot for the most part. There are a couple of referendums that are more statewide than really come down to what's going on in New York City in our general area. But something's on the ballot that caught my attention, and that is we are voting for judges. That's the focus of today's show, judges. I want us to understand I've talked with people over many years about the election of judges. What we see as the boring part, this is not an exciting time. These are people, we don't even know them. They don't really advertise or have any political commercials that show us who they are. They may or may not even give out pampas because this is money that has to be spent. But these judges are elected. We focus mainly on the U.S. Supreme Court, as we should, because it creates the law of the land, thus the name of this show. But... We also need to understand the politicians who are put in office, we vote on every year, then have the opportunity to nominate judges or influence the nomination of judges. We have the opportunity to vote for judges. When we don't know who they are, we kind of look at their names and we may say, well, that name looks like a name of a certain ethnicity or background or whatever, male, female, whatever may be, and say, I'm going to vote for that person or vote not at all. I know one thing that I have and have had a tendency of doing for a very long time. If I don't know who the person is, I put my own name in. Yes, because off to the side, it'll say you can sign in with somebody else's name I put my own name in if I don't know who it is I just write in my own name I've been doing that I think I did it one time today as well but here's my concern these judges are given power to decide the outcome of not just the disputes in front of them but of people's lives and certain policies 
that are going to be affecting our lives directly or indirectly when the legal case before that particular judge or jurist is not one that's medical malpractice or um, it, it could be um, a, a dispute with a housing with a neighbor next door. It could be um, any number of things with family court. Anywhere there is a conflict, there is a judge resolving that conflict. But as we begin to see more and more the legal issues around social justice cases, voting rights, um, women's rights for the autonomy of their bodies, when we begin to see what corporations can and cannot do and what limits there are put on the, the labor unions, we begin to understand the power of these judges on all of the different levels. We've just had a court decide that yet another police officer will be acquitted of killing an unarmed black man. The judge then listens to the evidence and decides what evidence can be um, applied and what evidence will be ruled inapplicable in the case or excluded for whatever reason. All of this comes down to the judge. Without vision, the people perish. What we're going to be talking about later on today is that over the last 40 to 50 years, conservatives had decided judges, especially the Supreme Court, but lower level judges, federal court judges, and I'm going to say coming up state court judges would be what they would use to mold the conservative ideology of this country. Over 40 years, this has been going on right under our noses. The person we're going to be talking about today is going to be one um, who has been behind the scenes and now has amassed control of a trust fund of over a billion dollars, billion with a B, to create a conservative country based on the ideology that certain people should be making the decisions in this country, and they understood the importance of judges. To many of us who are not conservative, who might consider themselves liberal or progressive, are thinking about the next election. We're looking at 2024. We're not looking at what people are doing generationally. And I always like to give conservatives their props because they think generationally, we think to the next holiday. We think to the next election. We think to the next primary. We think about what's going to happen in the next six months, maybe 18 to two years. But we're not thinking generationally. And without vision, the people perish. What vision do we have for this country? What do we want this country to look like? By the year 2045, the United States of America, as stated by the U.S. Census, will be majority people of color. By the year 2045, even as police officers are killing people of color who are unarmed and doing it with impunity, we need to understand, even as they undereducate our children and try as best they can in this country to practice a, a kinder genocide, shall we say, a kinder genocide. With all of that going on, with the inability to have immigration laws that are fair and effective, 
We are going to be a nation by 2045 that is majority people of color. And other folks know this, and it scares them to death. They have figured out and have a plan on how to remain in control of this country and create a legal apartheid that would allow them to maintain positions of superiority and power in the areas of economics, social interaction, law, and politics by undermining the right to vote for others and for our neglect in understanding the power of the vote and taking for granted in our, in our short-mindedness the idea that it's just going to be all right because we think it should be all right. Without coming together, unity is what we need, no matter how much money they have. And it's difficult because we also have a lot of people on our side with a lot of money. Without a unified strategic vision of what we want in this country, we are going to end up in an apartheid state by our own neglect. Today, we are discussing what is going on with the conservative strategies to remake this country or maybe take it back to where it was a hundred years ago. And I have with me Andy Kroll. He is an investigative reporter for ProPublica based in Washington. He covers the courts, elections, and other um, democracy issues. Good morning, Andy Kroll. Good morning. Great to be here. So the person we're discussing today is Leonard Leo. And I had heard the name many times, and I don't know if anyone else has. So who is this person, and why is he important enough that we should not only pay attention to what he's done, but where he's going after this? We like to say that Leonard Leo is perhaps the most influential person of the last 40 years in American politics that most people have not heard of. He is a conservative lawyer who has never argued a case in court. He is someone who has left a huge imprint on the American judicial system, yet has never decided a case from the bench. He's someone who is heavily involved in politics, but has never run for office or served in an elected office other than as the senior class president at his central New Jersey high school. He is, uh, you know, a, a combination of a, an activist, political operative, a lobbyist, someone who has spent 30 to 40 years, really his entire adult life, trying to shift the American judicial system to the right, trying to put more conservative judges on the bench. And I'm talking about every court from the Supreme Court down to state-level courts, someone who has cultivated, mentored, and looked after an entire generation of young conservative lawyers, and finally, someone who has raised and spent hundreds of millions of dollars, much of it anonymous, in that we don't know the original source of the money, to fund all of his activities. You know, he's... He's someone who, was, who for a long time has been happy to blend into the background and not receive acclaim or even any kind of attention for what he's done. 
But we're very much living in a world that Leonard Leo has helped bring into being today. And in this article, and those of you who want to read it can, um, after this program um, on Leonard Leo, uh, you begin, and your colleagues in writing this tremendously um, well-crafted piece, with his beginnings, we have him in Long Island in 1965. As you said, he moves to um, New Jersey after the death of his father. Um, and he has been in, in the shadows of kingmaking for the most part. He picks the judiciary. Why do, why do you think he chose judiciary? Was that a flank that was left open that um, was unprotected and therefore easy for him to access? I think that's part of the answer to your question, and it's a really good question. I think there are a couple of things at play. One is that conservatives like Leonard Leo, someone who is, I should say, not only conservative, but also a devout Roman Catholic and really passionate uh, in opposition to abortion rights, believe, I mean, Leo believes that the court under former Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren, you know, from the roughly the 50s to the 70s, the court that gave us Brown v. Board of Education, the court that gave us um, a whole bunch of other landmark decisions, Miranda and so on, uh, it really moved too far to the left, changed the country uh, in ways that were far too liberal and too loose in their interpretation of the Constitution. Uh, and he believes that the conservatives needed to get organized and push back and mobilize to reverse the direction that the country is moving in as, as, a, as a result of the decisions of the Supreme Court. Again, the, the, the Warren Court and then to some degree the Burger Court afterward, which is, of course, Roe v. Wade. And, you know, I think he identifies a gap in the American legal and political landscape, by that I mean, you know, the conservatives were not a force in the legal realm. And the liberals, you know, they just kind of took it for granted. They believed that, you know, they were dominant at the law schools, dominant at the law firms, and that they would sort of, through osmosis or just status quo, would continue to have courts and judges that would take more, uh, you know, expansive interpretations of the Constitution. And, and Leonard Leo, I think, very intentionally, sort of brick by brick, day by day, built a political machine to try to pull the courts back to the right. And, again, I think the liberals in the legal movement didn't think they needed a machine. They didn't think they needed to be organized. They just kind of thought that the arc of history would bend their way. And Leonard Leo set out to prove with manpower, money, and really a long-term strategy to show that, no, you know, I can bend the arc of history in my direction, a conservative direction, um, an a, a originalist direction with enough organization, and, that, and that's what Leonard Leo did. And even this, this concept of originalism, which I um, have to say, I'm not saying I'm going to debunk it, but I will say I will undermine this idea that originalism began in 1787 with the drafting of the Constitution. Originalism appears to have uh, 
sprung from the time period of the early 1980s and this idea of looking at the Constitution from a different perspective. But it's been touted most recently as having been something that uh, Madison had in mind from the beginning. Since we know that the Constitution is a compromise document, meaning there were slaveholders as well as abolitionists in the same room when it was created, we can't say that it's just representing um, a conservative ideal. And I raise this point because when we get to Judge Bork in 1987 and the idea of the, the Borkism, that he was Borked or uh, the, he was conservative and, and arrogant to a point that he turned off not just the progressives but also um, the Republican um, allies of his and therefore was nominated but did not reach the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, there was a change then, and this is when we see Leonard Leo make a, a decision that would then become something that would impact not just uh, the Supreme Court, but federal courts as well. He takes on this this idea, of you said, of remaking the vision of America through the Supreme Court. What, who was the first U.S. Supreme Court justice he took on to actually be a part of this new vision of the country? The first chance that Republicans and conservatives, period, got to try to remake the Supreme Court was John Roberts in 2005. That was the start of George W. Bush's first term. And actually, if you remember, this this is a crazy year in Supreme Court history because you have right away not just one but two openings on the court when Sandra Day O'Connor chooses to retire and then the Chief Justice, William Rehnquist, uh, dies. And those are two openings that Leonard Leo is instrumental in strategizing behind the scenes and is a key player in ensuring that those two picks would be someone who would be people who are sort of ideologically simpatico, that they are originalists um, and textualists, these, these, these sort of companion conservative legal theories, and that really they also are um, friendly with or even members of this organization called the Federalist Society. The Federalist Society is Leonard Leo's headquarters, his home base for, you know, from, from the start of his career in the early 90s, really until 2020. But this is the really the, 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 the white hot core of the conservative legal movement. The Federalist Society is the place where Leonard Leo is identifying these future conservative lawyers and jurists. They are getting steeped in the ideas of originalism and textualism, and they're debating those ideas with liberal counterparts in conferences on college campuses and so on. And so, you know, and Roberts and Justice Sam Alito are both put on the bench, the Supreme Court in 2005. You know, they are very much seen as having the stamp of approval of the Federalist Society, as are dozens of other judges at the lower court level, who whether it's the appeals courts, the federal district courts, who are also products of the Federalist Society, one of whom was a uh, younger Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh was also appointed to the federal, the D.C. appeals court in the Bush presidency, and Brett Kavanaugh is very much uh, a product of the Federalist Society. So you see the strategy playing out. It's at the Supreme Court. But it's not only at the Supreme Court. I mean, this is a this is a big 
conclusion, a big finding of our of our story, and also the podcast that we put out, which I would, I would highly recommend to your listeners as well. Both are called We Don't Talk About Leonard. You know, we really drill down on how Leonard Leo not only focused on the Supreme Court, not only the federal courts, but also state Supreme Court, the Office of State Attorney General, the role of state Solicitor General. He was very, very focused on the state level because the state level not only fed up to the national level, but the state level could have a huge impact on the policies of the country. And so he really worked hard to also put originalist and textualist and, you know, ideologically consistent allies in those state roles as well. And the Federalist Society, we, we talk about it now as though it's already always existed. It was actually created during the time period of, of Leonard Leo. He did not create it, but he did champion and, and found a, um, a chapter of it on his Cornell Law School campus. Um, my, my concern then rises to the point of he's seen as this person behind the scenes earning, or not earning, but making money uh, for conservative causes, raising money for those causes. And and so then it becomes almost this, this symbiotic relationship between the judges, politicians, and the founders and, and, and of, of these conservative causes and the, and the donors. How does this work? How, what is his magic touch that he then brings these four groups together? How is he able to be the, 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 um, the, the corner centerpiece of, the, of this um, machine that's now in place, that's been going on for decades? It's a really unique role that in all of our research and reporting for the story and the podcast, we could find no one else in American history who fit into this role in the way that Leonard Leo did, or, or someone who occupied or created a comparable role on the left or the right, really in any other part of American history. Because as you as you rightly describe it, you know he is um, someone who raises huge amounts of money and has extensive ties to major donors, some of the biggest donors in all of American politics. He's someone who is extremely close with conservative judges, including conservative Supreme Court justices. He has said that the late Justice Antonin Scalia was, quote, like an uncle to him. He has gone on uh, international trips and gone out to fancy dinners with Justice Sam Alito. And, of course, he is extremely close with Justice Clarence Thomas. He has not only uh, helped not only helped get Thomas on the Supreme Court bench back in 1991, but he also you know, has you know, sent money to Ginny Thomas, Justice Thomas's wife, for supposed contracting work. He is extremely close to the Thomases. If, for your listeners who have followed our Supreme Court reporting this year at ProPublica, you know, there's this, when we did our big story about Clarence Thomas in Harlan Crow, another major conservative donor in the Leo orbit, you know, that we, we found this incredible sort of painting, photorealistic painting of Justice Thomas talking to Harlan Crow at Harlan Crow's 
compound in upstate New York. And in that painting photo uh, is Leonard Leo sitting around. Or if, if your listeners have, have uh, if they remember the story that we broke about Justice Alito flying to Alaska for a sort of fancy fish salmon fishing junket with uh, a billionaire hedge fund donor named Paul Singer, someone who had a case before the Supreme Court not long after this, this fishing junket, Leonard Leo was the one who asked Paul Singer, the donor, if Sam Alito, the justice, could fly on Paul Singer's plane to Alaska. So he's the connector. He is the -the behind-the-scenes operator. And I think all of these different roles feed into each other. So he can go to a donor and say, well, you know, I had uh, a lovely dinner with Justice Alito the other night, and we talked about the issues of the day. And, And, you know, to a donor, that's like, oh, well, I can trust this guy, Leonard Leo, with my donations because he knows Supreme Court justices. Um, whereas, you know, the justices see the work that Leonard Leo is doing at the Federalist Society and they say, well, wow, this guy really has it figured out. He, you know, he's built this thing at the Federalist Society. All of these young clerks in my in my chambers, if you're a justice, are, are products of the Federalist Society. They're, you know, so it all sort of swirls into each other and the end product is you have this man who is unelected, not a judge, private citizen, who is incredibly influential in the composition, not just of the Supreme Court, but of so many courts in the country. And going back to Clarence Thomas, we did run a, um, actually two programs with someone, one from, with someone from ProPublica on the Clarence Thomas scandal. Um, we know less about Justice Alito, who's from the, the area, New Jersey, um, and his anti-union um, decision-making, as well as the court's anti-union decision-making. I mean, this this is something where we now see kind of a feeder into the U.S. Supreme Court of the outcomes that corporations want to have, and they're using Leonard Leo to get the message to the Supreme Court justices. One thing that's in this article I think is very important as well, that at one point Clarence Thomas, during the time period with um, the, the challenge that Anita Hill made of his competency to rise to the high court, given the uh, sexual harassment that he had taken part in while at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, of all places, that it was Leonard Leo who then um, found the money and the time and the effort and and did the research to bolster Clarence Thomas, um, even in the midst of that scandal. I think that's the, the origin of this pretty... Uh, sui generis relationship, if you will, between Leo and Justice Thomas. I mean, that confirmation hearing, you know, is a seminal moment in American history. And it's also a bit of a Rorschach test, even though that's sort of a cliche to mention. But, you know, for many, many Americans, they saw um, a black woman step forward, publicly testify under oath, about this harassment that she had experienced and this behavior she had witnessed and essentially saw elected officials dismiss her and dismiss her testimony, including the current president of the United States right now, a Democrat. Mm -hmm. Um, But for Leonard Leo, and, you know, when we do a story like this, 
we try to get inside the head as much as we can of you know, the, the subject and, and understand their sort of their thinking and their motivation. But for Leonard Leo, similar to Thomas himself, this was a searing moment in which he came to realize, in his view, that these confirmation hearings were bruising, scorched earth battles that needed to be waged like political campaigns that needed to be uh, have you know advertising budgets and attack ads and the strategies and the money that a campaign say for U.S. Senate or the House of Representatives would require and and so it, it was really interesting to see the other sides lessons from the Thomas hearings and, and not only to see how they were involved in this case you know Leo working on the Thomas confirmation hearing but also to see what it what it taught them and what what imprint it left on them it's a very different imprint from a lot of other Americans who sympathized with Anita Hill and and what she told the Senate and then the vote in the outcome from the Senate was 52-48, a very narrow margin. And we can probably, and the conservatives did, thank Leonard Leo and the campaign they waged that um, Clarence Thomas um, was able to ascend to the high court. And then we still have these issues and, and what looks like uh, deep-seated corruption, in my view, um, on the court with these um donor contributions to a lifestyle Clarence Thomas, Justice Alito, and probably some of the other justices are enjoying. And that takes me to what Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas um, had in common, which was the idea that they could not live the lifestyles they wanted to live on the salary of a federal employee. And so the supplementing of that lifestyle by these millionaires and billionaires was something I see that Leonard Leo um, understood is to keep these people they had cultivated on the bench, they would need to supplement their lifestyles. And so not only did ProPublica show that uh, Justice Scalia, well, he died in this very exclusive Texas um, ranch, no um, autopsy. We don't know what he was doing there. Um, we know that he had gone on these hunting um, trips, but also that Clarence Thomas in these vacations, Alito, and flying up on private planes to Alaska, these are lifestyle um, lifestyles they could not have possibly had unless they were independently wealthy on the federal salaries. And so in order to keep them happy and therefore in those positions where they can control where the country was going, we needed a fixer. We needed someone and that seems to me to be the Leonard Leo um, um, part of this, how to keep people who have now been cultivated in those positions of power so they can continue to have the decision making and and the impact on American culture. You know, all of this year, we've been publishing these stories at ProPublica about the court and pretty obvious apparent violations of the ethics law, the disclosure law by Justice Alito or Justice Thomas, um, perhaps even by Justice Scalia, though it's not as much of an issue because he's no longer alive and not on the court. And, you know, the, the, the feedback we've gotten to some of these stories was, one, obviously, thank you for exposing this. But, two, why do the justices do this? What is the motivation behind it? What is the reason behind it? And, you know, so when we, when, when we set out to report this Leo story, I, I, I figured that 
Leonard Leo might be a vehicle into answering this question, uh, a, a way into understanding kind of the motivations here. And, you know, in some ways, the sort of brazen decisions by the justices to, to accept these gifts, go on these trips, etc., and not disclose it. And, you know, I said the best answer I found came from George Conway. George Conway, of course, is a very prominent, never Trump figure today. But for most of his adult life, he was a pretty high up figure, an influential person in the conservative legal movement. I mean, people forget George Conway. You know, he he was uh, very much on the anti-Bill Clinton uh, team in the in the 90s. Very much not a, a, a uh, fan uh, of, of Democrats and liberals like he is today. But George Conway knew Leonard Leo, and George Conway traveled in the same circles that Leo and then some of these justices did as well. And I asked him about this. You know, and he, and he made a couple of points, but the one I thought was most interesting was, you don't have to agree with this, obviously, but, you know, he was in the room, so to speak. So I, I think his insights are, are valuable and, and valid was that, you know, these conservative justices, even though they're some of the most powerful people in this country, had this kind of, uh, you know, victim complex and felt that they were, you know, besieged by a sort of liberal mass culture, that people, you know, didn't treat them well. And that in some cases, they, you know, not only did they feel this way when they went out to dinner and so on, but also they didn't feel they were getting paid enough. But they wanted to live good lifestyles. And there was a fear that, uh, someone like a Scalia or a Thomas might one day just say, screw it. I don't need the, gr- the, the grief as they see it. Um, I want to make some more money so that I can go on the trips or whatever that I want to do. I quit. And of course that, you know, that could possibly cost conservatives their majority in the Supreme Court. It could set back their, their policy goals or their, their movement goals. And so these dinners and these trips and this sort of love from the donors to the justices was a way to, in Conway's telling, keep these justices happy and keep them on the bench so that they would continue doing what they're doing and ultimately get the court to a place where it, say, overturns Roe v. Wade or overturns uh, labor rights, overturns you know regulatory power in Washington in the favor of large businesses. So I thought the Conway insights were, were, were really revealing, and I you know I hope people you know, notice them and, and, and factor them in when they're thinking about the court and all of these controversies this year. Well, I'll tell you something, Andy. I, I didn't need George Conway to tell me that because it's quite obvious in this time period in which everyone wants to be a celebrity that these justices want that too. They want the lifestyle of the rich and famous, as they used to say back in the day. They want to be seen as celebrities. And this is this is really ego-fulfilling, you know, to be put on private planes and have these lifestyles that they would never have as a federal employee. Of course, of course. Um, but here's my other concern here. What is the Missouri plan? The Missouri plan is, a was at least intended to be a process for putting judges um, on the state Supreme Court of Missouri. That's where it originated, hence the name, and trying to take politics out of the work of choosing which judges hold the highest office at the state level. And so Missouri, many decades ago, decided, you know, we're, we're not going to 
do this process where people vote and elect their judges because there are a lot of problems with that outside influence, the fact that people really don't quite know who they're voting for. These are quote unquote low information elections, or we don't want just like one political official, like a governor unilaterally choosing our judges. And so Missouri, again, many years ago comes up with this commission style with, um, you know, some political figures, some experts, other judges to try to come up with, uh, the most uh, transparent and apolitical process for picking state judges. Uh, Leonard Leo and his allies in the mid-2000s decide that they don't like the Missouri plan and set out to take it out in Missouri. What better place to, to defeat this Missouri plan than in the state where it was created? Um, they're not successful in Missouri, but they do develop quite a playbook, as we write uh, in the story and as we, as we say in the podcast, quite a playbook for influencing state judicial races. And this is just another arena where Leo and his allies, again, bring together um, sort of a long-term strategy, some bare-knuckle tactics, especially in Missouri, and then a whole lot of money to change how the judicial system works, in this case, at the state level. And I want to then circle back to a U.S. Supreme Court case, and that is Americans for Prosperity Foundation v. Bonta, B-O-N-T-A. And this was a case in which we had um, a law in California in which um, donors would have to be revealed and then this law was challenged, it went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and other progressive groups with the conservatives um, sent in a, um, a, a MISI briefs uh, challenging the court's um, ideas on the Ninth Circuit that this should be something that we should know about, that at least the, the, the state of California should know who these donors are. It should not be secret. The U.S. Supreme Court then decides that the donor list should be kept secret and that California has no right to know who these donors are. At the time, I said, because the U.S. Supreme Court justices' names could be on the list of donors. And... My concern is how this, yes, my concern is how these donors now are implicated in this whole process of making these judges that are placed on the bench for these very, um, very specific ideological reasons. Yeah, there, there are two really important things going on in what you've just described. One is the increasing, increasingly large amount of spending in the process of picking judges. And by that I mean at the federal level, Supreme Court confirmations have become all-out political wars. Leonard Leo himself has said this. He uses the language of war when he talks about confirming or if it's a Democratic nominee, trying to defeat a pick for the Supreme Court. And that was not the case when Robert Bork went up for his seat and was defeated in 1987. It is very much the case now, and, and, and to be fair, it is very much the case on both sides, Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives alike. 
now treat these confirmation battles as scorched earth uh, demonstrations of political warfare. And so you have a lot of money and, of course, people with interests, people who have a stake in court, Supreme Court decisions giving money to fuel these battles. And then at the state level, you have out-and-out elections. Just this year in Wisconsin, this spring, the election to uh, pick new state Supreme Court justice in Wisconsin came down to a conservative and a liberal. The winner would decide the balance of power in the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and it ended up being the most expensive state Supreme Court election in American history that we know of. Leonard Leo and his allies were very much involved on behalf of the conservative candidate, Dan Kelly. But liberal groups spent heavily, heavily in favor of the liberal candidate, Janet Protasewicz, who ended up winning. And so you see, again, money pouring in there as well. And those donors, again, they have interests before the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin. They have interest in how those decisions are, are reached and who is reaching the decisions. And then, on top of all of this, we have an issue of transparency. We have a crisis of transparency, frankly. And this is getting to what you said about the uh, AFP versus Bonta decision. It's one thing to have a ton of money flowing into confirmation fights at the, state, at the national level or state Supreme Court elections in a place like Wisconsin, and you know who the donors are. And you can see with your own eyes or you're a citizen, you can read your local news outlet, and they will tell you that, you know, these many people gave this amount of money, and here are the dots that are connecting about what these donors may want from how that Supreme Court rules in future cases. But we don't have that transparency. We don't have it fully at the state level, and we have very little of it at the national level, in part because the conservative movement, including Leonard Leo, has steadily chipped away at those disclosure laws, saying that they are, uh, you know, really not a part of uh, free speech. They're really not a you know, First Amendment issue, saying that these donors face harassment and thus should not be uh, named publicly. You know, you just you see less and less information publicly available. I can tell you this as someone who reports on it about who the funders are at the same time that more money is coming in. And that's a real problem for democracy when we don't know where the money's coming from and what those donors might want from a future Supreme Court or a future Wisconsin state Supreme Court. So as we come to um, the end of a, I, I just find this all a very fascinating discussion. We have Leonard Leo and his um, supporters, allies, friends with template playbooks that are being replicated in jurisdictions all around the country so that other people can create their own Leonard Leos and their their own ways in which um, these judges and the judges elections for judges and other elections can be influenced. So for homework, as my listeners have been sitting on the edge of their seats wondering, so what can we do? What do you see uh, as a possibility for people on this our election day in New York City? 
in New York State. Um, what are we to do when it comes to judges and elections? Because there's so little information. We had um, judges on our um, ballot today. I voted earlier today. I, I did not know any, as you said, low information about them. I did not know anything about these judges. You go by, you know, the demographic, basically their name. What does it sound like? What do you think they, they've done in the past? How are we to know more about these judges as we go forward in, in voting? Yeah, I would say a couple of things, and it's a great question. First would be to try to, before an election day, try to look up as much information as you can about these judges on the ballot. If, if you can't find information readily available, then try to get some kind of forum or you know, as a reporter, I get emails from people all day long saying you should cover this, you should cover that. You should do that as a citizen. If you're not seeing the information you want, do not hesitate to email someone who you think should be covering it and ask them to cover it. Because this is, you know, these are really, really important positions, these judgeships. And, you know, they, we've been talking about sort of big national issues, but, you know, these judges are really important on matters that affect people's everyday lives, about economic issues, about labor issues, about criminal justice, for sure. And so you really, really want to know who you're checking, whose box you're checking when you're doing these elections. The other thing I would say, we've been talking a lot about, Leo, to to, great shows like this all over the country, and people say, well, I feel a little disempowered here. What can I do in the face of this man and his money? You know, the, the, I think a lot of the focus right now uh, for for groups that, you know, Leo is involved with or funds, you know, it's, a lot of it is local. A lot of it is uh, state level, sometimes even smaller than that, sometimes even like at a school district level. And, you know, those are either elections or issue debates that really just being tuned in, showing up, making your voice heard is crucial. And I, and I think you see some results of this, you know, in the wake of the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade. You saw voters in states that you never would have imagined going to the, the polls and voting in favor of protecting reproductive rights in a place like Kansas. No one thought Kansas was going to come out in big numbers and vote in support of abortion rights. It's a pretty conservative state, but that's exactly what Kansas did um, last year and today. There is a huge abortion rights ballot amendment um, on uh, on the ballot in Ohio, and I think this is going to be another big test. And so, you know, a lot of this stuff may sound national or in Washington, and may seem kind of distant, but actually, the next wave of big decisions, debates, and 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 battles are really going to be playing out at the local level in your community. And so, it's important to be just as tuned into that stuff where you live, as it is to the craziness in Washington, the big decisions at the Supreme Court, because sometimes those local issues matter just as much, if not more, to your lived experience than, you know, the fight over the next speaker in the United States House of Representatives. And I know we're down to our last minute. Many of these towns and cities that um, could play a pivotal role in the judicial races 
are also places where we have news deserts. We can go online, but unless there are journalists and other people who are covering these stories, um, people will not have the information necessary to, to know the importance of the judicial elections in front of them. Um, is there a national website or anything that's giving people information on, the, on what's going on locally? Or how can they actually um, call the information needed to know? I mean, you have people who are judges who are having decisions being made in, in particular cases. Unless that case is covered, um, a, a regular person's not going to know in a criminal justice case how a, a judge affected the outcome of the case and their decision making based on a conservative ideology or not. What is one to do in that? And I know I put you on the spot in the last few moments, but what is one to do in these food, uh, I mean, news deserts for food for thought, I would say, if you can't go into great detail? Yeah, no, it, it's, a, it's a great question. I wish I knew the answer, but, but I will say a couple things. I mean, uh, number one is, thankfully, in a lot of places, there's still public radio, even if there isn't a newspaper. Listen to your public radio, you know, if you are able to, even in the smallest possible way, support public radio. I mean, I, I you know, donate to the, the public radio station here in Washington, and I kind of think of it as almost like, paying my utility bill. You know, I want my water to to run and to be clean, and I want electricity, need electricity at my house, and I need public news. And, you know, I don't give a lot of money because I don't have a lot of money, but I treat it that way, and I, I, I would urge others who are, you know, in a position to do so to, to think similarly. You know, there is a great website called Ballotopedia, like Wikipedia, but Ballot. Uh, that is a fountain fire hose even of information about who's on a ballot what's on the ballot what's what you know what these issues mean you know if there's a ballot initiative in your state today and you aren't sure what it is go to this website ballotopedia.org they are exhaustive in their you know resources in terms of explaining you know all of these electoral issues you know there's another good website i've also found myself going to more and more called stateline.org it's a project of the Pew Charitable Trust, really aiming to provide sort of factual, objective journalism, all focused on the state, policy in the states, politics in the states. Uh, it doesn't get enough credit. I go there a lot. I would definitely urge listeners as well to add that into their news diet so that it's not, again, all news that's international, like right now, or national in Washington, but also in your state as well, I think you'll be better informed on, on state happenings from reading Stateline. Thank you so much, Andy Kroll. Andy Kroll is an investigative reporter for ProPublica based in Washington. Thank you, and I hope you can return soon. We have many things to discuss. Thanks for having me. I'd love to be back. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. Uh, he said it for me, but I'll say it again. Give to your public radio. Um, WBAI, I think, is that public radio for you. And 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950, give to WBAI. We just spent 40 minutes having an in-depth conversation about Leonard Leo, a man 
many of you probably have never heard of before. If you did in passing, you did not know the great influence he has had on conservatism and creating what we see now that could be by 2045, a country in which the conservatives have implemented a type of apartheid in which they continue to have originalism and their application of patriarchy be the uh, the way this country is 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 run did you know this and that's why i started by saying without vision the people perish but you can't decide how you want your future to look at least work toward it no one can control everything unless you have some information and this information was given to you today it's not conjecture this is not what i just believe think surmise this is what is happening right now 212-209-2950-212-209-2950. Be a BAI buddy. That is the number to call in order to support law of the land. The research that we do, finding this particular guest to help us better understand what is going on in our judiciary, not just at the U.S. Supreme Court, but at the state Supreme Court as well as the, as the local level, and to end with resources for you, resources you could use, Ballopedia, stateline.org, resources for you. All of this was given to you today, but we've got to keep the lights on. We've got to be able to pay Michael G, who is a wonderful engineer, but he has to be paid. 212-209-2950. Become a BAI buddy. Give the support that you can and vote. Today is voting day. You just heard what was said, and there are judges on the ballot. Look them up, not like me. When I got there, I did not know anything about them. You have an opportunity to look them up, find out what's going on. You can go online and look up who are the judges on the ballot in New York City, New York State, and look those judges up and find out something about them before you go in there. We have to be informed. Knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. Oh, you've got me excited. Okay, I'm calming down. Become my BAI buddy. Thank you, Michael G., for this show. And whew, I'll see you on the radio.